About 75 years after Paul wrote his inspired letter to Titus, a church leader, a man who lived in the city of Athens, wrote a letter to a friend describing the differences between Christians and those around him who didn't know the Lord. And keep in mind, he wrote this just about 75 years after Paul wrote to Titus. This man wrote, the difference between Christians and the rest of mankind is not a matter of nationality or language or customs. Christians do not live in separate cities of their own, speak any special dialect or practice any eccentric way of life. They conform to ordinary local usage in their clothing, diet, and other habits. Nevertheless, they do exhibit some features that are remarkable and even surprising. For instance, even though they obey the prescribed laws, in their own private lives they transcend those laws. They show love to all men, and all men seem to persecute them. They are misunderstood and condemned, but they repay curses with blessings and abuse with courtesy. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? He writes, they obey prescribed laws. Paul writes in Titus 3.1, be subject to rulers and authorities, be obedient. A second century church leader writes, the Christians are misunderstood, but they repay curses with blessings. Paul wrote in that second verse, malign no one. This man wrote, the Christians respond to abuse with courtesy. Paul would challenge them and us to be peaceable and gracious. This man wrote, they show love to all men. Titus 3.2 says, show every consideration to all kinds of men. It sounds like the inspired letter of Paul to Titus made it from the island of Crete all the way over to the city of, of Athens. I wonder if it's made it from the island of Crete and the city of Athens to the city of Cary or Raleigh or Morrisville. You're saying, oh, he doesn't mention my city. You know, I haven't done this in a while. Let me take an informal poll. Where do you live? How many of you are living in this congested area for relocated Yankees known as Cary? How many of you are Yankees? A lot of hands went quickly down. <laughs> Not I. Well, that's a lot of people. Okay, Raleigh. Yeah. Apex. A lot of Apex. Holly Springs. Fuquay Verena, Morrisville. <laughs> Thank you, sir. This is the mayor of Morrisville, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Who'd I leave out? Durham. How many from Durham? Okay. Chapel Hill, over to my left. Who else? I heard Garner. Garner? Yeah. Anybody else? Nightdale. How many Nightdale? Wow, yeah. Southern Pines. Glad you're not golfing today and you're in church. That's wonderful. Speaks highly of you. Anybody else? Wilson? Zebulon? Who else? Lewisburg? Wilmington. Were you trying to remember 
Uh, okay. That's amazing. We are so glad you have driven here. But I got to tell you, this letter has our address no matter where we live. It's on the label. It's ours. And you might not have caught it, but right in the middle of this man's letter, he used what I'm using as the theme for our series through chapter 3. Let me read it again. He basically says they eat like us. These Christians look like us. They live around us. But they exhibit some features that are remarkable. They stand out. I mean, nobody does this kind of stuff. You, You don't take abuse sitting down. You get up and you swing back. You don't love all kinds of people. You love your favorite kind of people. You don't allow misunderstanding to go unchecked. <laughs> Wait a second. Listen here. Let me, let me set the record straight. That's how you live and act. No wonder this description of them slips in this little letter nearly 2,000 Years ago, this little word in that letter, all he can say is these Christians, here's a summary, they are remarkable. Now we've already begun this study in Titus chapter 3, and in the first two verses we discovered that they were remarkable because they obeyed the law, they went the extra mile, they avoided the grapevine, they didn't hit back, they stayed the course, and they didn't play favorites. Now what Paul does next is interesting. He not only reminds them of what they should be doing as remarkable Christians, he reminds them of what they used to be doing, which can be a heavy topic. What you used to be like. Look at verse 3 of Titus chapter 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved in various lusts and pleasures, Spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. I want you to notice the verse begins, however, with this connective conjunction for. For we also, which basically implies that the believer might be wondering why in the world he should ever be kind and humble and and, and show deference and, 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 and humility to others. And Paul anticipates that response and he effectively says, look, you ought to live like that. You ought to act like this toward them because of what you used to be like, verse 3. And then we're going to just slip over into the very beginning of verse 4 where he says, and when you were like that, God appeared in kindness and he saved you. Remarkable. Lord. In other words, remember the pit from which you were dug. It'll do you good to remember the slime in which you swam, which is rather surprising. Remember the potential of your fallen nature, which used to run and and drag you through the mud, and you enjoyed every minute of it. He began this chapter by saying, remind them, remind them, keep on reminding them 
remind these believers what makes them so remarkable and then remind them what made them so despicable. You'd think there aren't many counselors, there aren't many motivational speakers or whatever keep a practice going if they reminded people of what they uh, used to be like as an incentive to doing what they should be doing. I mean, can you imagine? You mean Titus is supposed to challenge Christians to live for Christ by reminding them how they used to live for the devil? What kind of strategy is that? But that's exactly what Paul is about to do. Why he does it will become clear as we end this study. Verse 3, now more carefully, notice. For we, and I just want to pause because I want you to understand, this is encouraging, Paul shifts from talking about them to talking about us. It's no longer, hey, you guys... It's all of us. Paul never, ever forgot his past. You you see it slipping out in biographical statements. He, He so caught up with the grace of God in his own life, and I'm convinced that people who never completely get over their past are people who who never quite get over their conversion. They never quite forget. Who they were. And they live with the grace of God in the forefront of their minds as a result of it. For we also, we, I'm including myself in this, Paul says, we also once were, the first description, foolish. I'm going to use the word biased for the sake of an outline. It's the idea here. He's not talking about people who are illiterate, people who are uneducated. That's not what foolish means here. He's not referring to silliness. He's not referring to irrational thinking. The word Paul uses here is someone who is intellectually, knowingly biased against any talk of God, any reference of God, any suggestion, certainly, of accountability before God. Paul would refer to the same kind of person in Ephesians 4 where he writes, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the hardness of their hearts. This person literally scorns the wisdom of God. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 28 verse 26 about them, the foolish person is literally in a deliberate state of folly. I am where I want to be. Don't try to nudge me out of it. That's the idea of foolish. Deliberately choosing their folly. He's effectively the opposite of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 then. The biased rebel is determined to trust in himself, to lean upon his own understanding in all his ways to acknowledge himself. Paul is saying, we need to remember that that's who we once were. In fact, now that we're Christians, let's not forget how close we are daily to living like that all over again. We still need the reminder to trust him, to lean on not our understanding, but in all our ways to acknowledge him, put him first. The foolish person says, I'm first. Don't mention someone that could potentially unseat me from my throne. I'm here and I like it this way. 
don't, don't bother me. So it automatically follows then here in this list in Titus chapter 3 verse 2 that he's also disobedient. I mean, if, if I don't believe God has a right over my life, well, why would I ever obey him? So he's not only biased, he is secondly belligerent. This word Paul uses describes a person who deliberately chooses to rebel not only against an idea of a personal God, but against an idea of a moral standard created by a personal God. And and, and this attitude isn't just belligerence against God. In fact, Paul doesn't even qualify it that way in this text. It's an overall categorical lifestyle of belligerence. They live disobedient lives. One author wrote that this word refers to the kind of person who chafes under any kind of authority. Paul says, you remember how you were until you acknowledged the sovereign mastery of God? You chafed under any kind of authority. Certainly his. Frankly, we're watching in our land today. All you have to do is read the newspaper, which I do every so often, how the authority of our land through courts and laws, there's there's an attempt to wrest some kind of, or develop some kind of control for a runaway, disobedient, belligerent culture, and the culture isn't really responding We've watched in recent years legislative bodies begin to weigh in on all kinds of things. They're passing bans and creating laws on all sorts of activities, major and minor. Weighing in where parents should even. Now there are, legis- there are actually legislative bans against things like body piercing on minors. On the sale or rental of violent video games to minors. Or even laws against junk food machines in school lunchrooms. We're going to have a law about that. In fact, the lower house in the Texas legislature even devised a ban on overtly suggestive cheerleading for high schools. We've got to put a ban on We're going to make a law about that, which I thought was ironic. Texas is trying to ban suggestive cheerleading. What's even more ironic is that they in every state in this union would never think about banning or even discouraging sexual activity after the game. Let's just keep the cheerleaders from suggesting it during the game. Let's put a ban. Let's make a law about that. One author put it perceptively that we just simply have more and more children who are arriving in the classroom without any kind of moral compass. Their parents didn't have one to begin with to pass along and Lawmakers, rightly, don't even know where to begin to enforce them. Listen, you cannot have, you cannot watch an argument take place on the floor of a national political party on primetime television on whether or not you should even mention God and then expect the next generation to care about God, much less obey God. Here's the progression. You develop a personal and cultural bias against God, and you will soon develop a personal and cultural belligerence against the boundaries of God. 
anything that smacks of authority. I, I am where I am. Don't mess with me. It's just a little step away from who do you think you are to even suggest that I move. And so foolishness becomes disobedience. Bias turns into belligerence, which leads Paul to call what he says here a disobedient spirit, literally a chafing under any kind of moral or ethical authority, and it's going to grow more and more obvious. One report I read recently talked about an incident where 125 Harvard University students were caught collaborating on an exam by way of email, even though on the exam printed on it was, and I quote, a violating a no collaboration policy. They could not violate it by talking to each other. But get this, many of the students were shocked when they were caught and then charged with cheating. Some of them threatened to sue the school because they didn't know it was cheating, even though it was printed on the examination. One reporter responded tongue-in-cheek when he wrote, are we meant to assume that students who are smart enough to get into Harvard don't know what cheating is? Will the school need to offer later a course on why it's a bad idea to pour gasoline on a flaming toaster oven in the dormitory? All these news items and all these reports simply highlight the simple fact that apart from a moral lawgiver, you cannot have moral guidelines. Who's to say what's right or wrong? And we're watching that with such speed taking place. In fact, just this month, just this past month, the country of Brazil became all tangled up. They had passed a month earlier the legality of gay marriage. And now a notary happened to approve a three-way civil union, one man and two women, which is where we're going to get eventually. She claimed that she hadn't broken any law. And the trouble is, nobody can argue with her. In fact, she noted that, that, that Brazil approved gay marriage. The notary said there's no laws against polygamy. There are no laws on the books. And so since now the definition is flexible, marriage is obviously flexible. Why not? One man, two women. Our culture is being set up for polygamy. That's one of the next hurdles in our belligerence against the standard of God. Why not, though? You think about it. You dismiss God, one man famously said, and anything's permissible, right? I mean, I read this week about a man in India who married a goat. Maybe she could cook. I don't know. What folly... Our world is biased in their folly. They are belligerent in their disobedience. Now, thirdly, Paul would write, they are blind. They're blind. He says deceived, spiritually blind is the idea. You dismiss God, follow your own path, and the Bible tells you ahead of time you're going to go from bad to worse. You're going to go from a little tangle to all tangled up. Why? Because God isn't the only voice out there. He isn't the only voice. In fact, sometimes I, I, I feel his is the quietest among them. Let me, let me tell you about another voice out there. While God will always speak the truth to you, 
while God will always seek to protect you, while he will always give you guidelines to provide, guidance, direction, there's another voice. And that voice has a native tongue, and it isn't the truth. It is lying. He is the father of what? Lies. John 8, 44. John 8, 44. He, he comes up with that stuff. It's, it's his native tongue. And he's had thousands of years to practice. From the very beginning lie, he whispered into the ear of Eve, he, he masquerades, not as a guy with a pitchfork and a tail and horns, but as an angel of what? Light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. He deceives the whole world, Revelation 12, 9. He's a master at it. So the person that says, I'm not going to listen to the voice of God, guess what? You are now open to listen to the voice of a master deceiver. So the word Paul uses here to describe our fallen condition, deceived, is a word that you could literally translate misled. In our vernacular, you could even use the word duped. Duped. Paul warned Timothy that evil men will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. While they got their own scam going, deceiving others, they are deceived. They are duped. 2 Timothy 3.13. They look good. They sound religious, perhaps. They might even have a collar on or stand behind a pulpit. That's why Paul wrote earlier to Titus to make him alert to those who've actually turned away from the truth and are now upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. They're teaching things that might uplift the spirit might please the ear, but they are, Jesus said, blind people, leading blind people, and they're all eventually going to fall into the same pit. Matthew 5.14. The world is rejecting a creator God and is duped in the process, blinded. So here's the description, biased, belligerent, blind, and now fourthly, bound. He writes in the middle part of verse 3, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Enslaved. Bound. Bound in lusts. The word is epithemia for strong desire. Keep in mind that word refers to that which is only in the mind, in the heart. It is the fantasy of the mind. It is the desire of the heart. People then, he says, are enslaved to fantasies. You can be enslaved to something that only takes place in your mind, whether you ever do anything about it or not. You see, Paul would have something to say to our culture today and the popular argument that um, violent gaming or pornography isn't really all that bad because you're not actually physically involved. It's just a game. It's just in the mind. Paul would say, no, it all belongs in the same kettle of soup. In fact, it's enslavement, whether it stays in your mind or it ends up all over your hands. 
And more than that, he's writing this to all of us. And here's part of this point. He's saying, look, look, th- this, is, this is part of our old lives. This represents our old life, not our new life. That that belongs in the, in the pit. And, it, and, and yes, it wants to crawl out of that pit on every occasion it can, it can create. Bar it up. Put all kinds of limitations. Guard your heart. Out of it comes issues of life and death. Here's the warning. Since we eventually act out fantasies, it begins in the mind and heart and eventually is or can be acted out, Paul then uses the next word. Not just lusts, but pleasures. This is a word of physically acting out sinful desire. Now, the word Paul uses here for pleasure is actually the word hedone, which gives us our word hedonism. And that broadens it all. See, hedonism is simply the pursuit of self-satisfaction. And that can be anyway, anything, whatever it might be. Hedonism is the number one religion on the planet. It's it's at the core. It's I, me, and mine. Hedonism. In fact, would you notice he uses the word here before lusts and pleasures, the word various. Various. I don't know how it is in your translation, but it means multicolored, variegated, many colored. Now, how many colors are out there? I mean, you got your primaries, and there aren't many more than that. Well, just wait till your wife wants to paint a room and send you down a load, Lowe's to pick up blue paint. So you go to Lowe's, and you walk up to the guy, and you say, um, I'm here to get a gallon of blue paint. <laughs> he just begins to laugh at you. What kind of blue do you want? Blue. How hard can that be? Well, go over to that wall where you got 300,000 color pieces and you look at all of the blues. Is it, is it teal blue? Is it royal blue? Is it steel blue? Is it, is, it, is it powder blue? Is it aqua blue? Is it navy blue? Is it baby blue? Is it Mediterranean blue? Is it cobalt blue? Is it periwinkle blue? And the guy's laughing. He's still on the floor over there at your predicament. And then you spot it. You got it. Carolina blue. Oh, Oh, wait. Then you see Duke blue. You can leave now if that's your color. Just want you to know that. I mean, you had no idea there were so many colors of blue on the planet. That's the idea here. You have no idea how many kinds of sins we can come up with. I have no idea. The word for pleasures here, by the way, is not just a reference to some kind of immoral or sexual sin. Paul actually uses it in his letter to Timothy for covetousness. Oh, man. Materialism. Materialism. Add that to your color palette. Materialism, this word covetousness, Paul is effectively saying, is is enslaving us to want more. 
it, it thinks about it, it dreams about it, it fantasizes about it, it lusts after it, it lives for it, it needs more money for it, whatever it is, I want that shade and that shade and that shade and that shade, and I want that color and that color and that color and that color. I want it all. I want it all. I'm never satisfied because there's another color. I, I want that one too. Oh, I didn't see that shade. See, the world thinks it's free as a bird to think anything, to do anything, to want anything, to pursue anything. And Paul says, no, it's actually enslavement. You are enslaved to what you have, to what you can't have, to what you shouldn't have, to what you don't have. And it spirals downward from there because you never get everything you want. So what happens next? Paul goes on to describe the next step with this loaded phrase. Verse 3 again. Spending our life in malice and envy. Literally, passing the time. This is the hobby of everyone's life. Passing the time envying. Driving to work, envying. Coming home, envying. Going to the campus, envying. Going out to play, envying. See, envy is a key driving factor in what I'll simply label as bitterness. Bitterness. Look at what they have. Look at what they wear. Look at what they drive. Look at where they live. Look at what they do. Look at their toys. I didn't even know that existed. I've got to add that one to what I want. Envy is more than that, though. Envy, this Greek word, has the, has the feeling of displeasure when you see someone having it. It isn't just, I want what they've got. Is I don't like them because they've got it. It's the idea. Malice is, is a chilling word that, that talks about wanting to remove that person, do something to that person so I can have what they have. I'm not going to sit down. I'm not going to take it. I deserve it. I want it. I ought to have it. That's the idea. Let me give you just a little illustration. I mean, this might just be a blip on the radar screen, but I saw it come across the news. Parents in Tennessee, they complained that putting up the honor roll embarrassed the kids who were excluded. So because of the uproar they created, that school literally eliminated the honor roll. The issue was not embarrassment over the kids whose names weren't on the list. Kids whose names weren't on the list don't care. I was one of them. Big deal. <laughs> you mean these kids are working so hard to, do, to get that? Is that it? Is that what their reward? Forget that. It was parents who were envious because their kids weren't on that list. Paul adds, they're just passing the time with envy and malice. It doesn't just stop with the honor roll. (laughs) One father was so angry that his daughter had been suspended from the school softball team. He took an aluminum bat and beat that coach and put him in the hospital. 
you will not get in my way or in my family's way. Road rage. Where'd that come from? Envy. They took my spot. Malice. I'm going to run them off the road because of it. My son told us recently he was behind a guy who was moving slowly down the road. I didn't ask him how slowly. Didn't want to know. When the dotted line appeared, he got around the guy and that guy just came awake. He just came alive. He raced after my son, zipped around him, and immediately slammed on his brakes. The only thing that kept my son from not hit, hitting him was he was able to swerve into the other lane and around him, to which the guy then caught up, passed him, and then my son backed way off. What's that all about? Infuriated at being passed on the road, a person becomes willing at their own peril to shed Blood? I mean, can it really become that malicious? Absolutely. It was envy. It was envy that led the Sanhedrin to the point where they incited the riot who shouted, crucify him, bringing Jesus to Pilate. Pilate, I love that. He says he, he knew that it was for envy that they delivered him. That's to the core of it. They're following Jesus. They're not following us. We're going to get rid of him. He's taken our spot. That's ours. So Paul ends the list then where it would naturally progress. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy. Now notice, hateful, hating one another. There you go. It's the bottom of the pit. We just hate everybody. And we're just hateful people. You could call this bad-tempered. People are just at each other's throats. Think about it. Think about the shallowness of relationships where you work or where you go to school. Think of how quickly the -the behind-the-back comments break out when someone's not around. Because maybe they got promoted. Maybe they got something somebody else wanted. See, you could, you could outline this text in three steps downward or three concentric circles working outward, whichever. But the first one is a description of our attitude toward God. Foolish and disobedient or biased and belligerent. Secondly, Paul describes our attitude toward ourselves. We think we're smart. We think we're free, but we're actually deceived and enslaved. We're actually blind and bound. Then thirdly, he describes our attitude toward others, malice, envy, and hatred. Now we could close our Bibles and we could admit that Paul fully and realistically described the awfulness of our sin in the past, but also the depths of our depravity even now. And he has indeed every right to say that this list includes us all, for we all came from that pit. And our nature gravitates back toward it. But I don't want to end there today. So let me just kind of dip our toe into verse 4. And one of my favorite words in the English Bible, 
appears. But. How bad can it get? Oh, it's bad. But. But. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. You don't come to the end of a list like that and say, but he saved us. You come to the end of a list like that and you say, that's why he got rid of us. But he saved us. The kindness and love of God appeared. The word is epiphany. It appeared, a reference to the incarnation. He came, not to discard us, but to save us. Biased, bad-tempered, blind, belligerent, bound, bitter, and he saved us. This will then, in Paul's mind, provoke us, incentivize us to live for Christ. Remember the pit? Oh, but he saved us. You know, in light of that, I want to live for him. I want to love him. And I really ought to love all these people out here because you know what? They remind me of me. Like George Whitfield, who watched a man walking toward the gallows who said, there, but by the grace of God, go I. See, there's no room for pride in that. It's realism. It's humility. It's compassion. It's love. This will provoke an incentive to love Christ back and deliver him and to serve him and to serve others here in the body, to serve those in our world as we make him our master and Lord. Our, our lives become one gigantic exclamation point of gratitude. That's why Paul has reminded us of why we can be so thankful and how it changes our lives. I read some time ago about an old man who lived in Florida. Everybody referred to him as Old Ed. Old Ed. Just about every Friday evening, he could be seen walking along the beach to his favorite pier carrying a bucket of shrimp. It wasn't for him. It wasn't for his family. It wasn't for his friends. The shrimp, it was, that bucket was for the seagulls. That's an expensive way to get birds around you. But he would walk out to the end of that pier and soon the evening sky would be filled with screeching birds swooping down to catch the shrimp as he threw it into the air. And people talked about how old Ed, he'd be seen out there. and They could tell his lips were moving and they knew he was talking to the birds. And he was. Within minutes, the bucket would be empty and old Ed would stand there at the end of the pier and he'd just stare off at them as they flew away and deep in thought. And he'd turn and walk home. His full name was Eddie Rickenbacker. He'd been a captain in World War II. He'd flown a B-17 with a crew of seven other men on one particular mission across the Pacific. They actually got lost and the plane ran out of gas. They settled it as smoothly as they could. In fact, it was 
smooth enough to allow all of them to survive it, and miraculously they made it out of the plane and into their life raft. They lived for weeks. He talks about it in his autobiography. They fought the sun, they fought the sharks, and most of all they fought their hunger as they began to starve to death. Ed remembers and would write about being semi-conscious, sitting in that raft, his hat pulled down over his eyes when he felt something land on his head. It was a seagull. That gull meant food. And so as slowly as he could, hardly daring to breathe, he reached up his hands and he caught it. They made a meal of that bird, used the leftovers for bait, which allowed them to catch fish. They repeat the cycle, and they survived. Later rescued. Old Ed never forgot. Nearly every Friday evening for years until he died, he'd go to that pier with a bucket full of shrimp and the seagulls would fly overhead and if he got close enough to him, you'd know as he threw it into the air, what he was saying was thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What are those Christians mumbling about? Ah, they're talking to God, I guess. If the world could get close enough to us, might they hear nothing less than our gratitude to God who saved us from ourselves, who saved us from the pit, who forgave every sin, past, present, and future, saved us from a horrible future, saved us from a meaningless Life all tangled up in ourselves. What an incentive to leave that old life and pursue a new life. Paul would effectively say, that, that's my point. Get out there and live it and, and say it. What are you saying, Lord? We remember. Thank you. Lord, we remember. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, we today, as a body of believers, come and collectively say to you, thank you. We would never see the benefit of reminding anybody of the past. But in your infinite wisdom, you called upon Paul, the great apostle, and Titus, the young pastor, and these congregations to do just that very thing. Because in remembering, it changes our perspective about who you are and who we are. And what our lost world is really filled with. Which gives us the incentive to love them like you love us. 
and to serve them and each other as you serve us with this attitude that says, Lord, we remember. Help us not to forget. Lest we fail to say thank you, Lord. 